Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Lightning fans, you found the right show for everything you need to know about your favorite team in the NHL. It's the Lightning Insider Podcast with Eric Erlinson. Get ready for insight, historical perspective, interviews, and breaking news that comes from a reporter insider who's got near 20 years on the Tampa Bay Lightning beat. Now for the latest with the Lightning, here's Eric. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to the 28th episode of the Lightning Insider Podcast. I am your host, Eric Erlinson from lightninginsider.com, and it's been a slow offseason to this point. Not a whole lot going on really around the league, obviously, with the Lightning uh, even quieter. Um, so, you know, with everything that's not gone on with Tampa Bay, Julian Breezebois still has not addressed the media, and I don't expect that to happen until some of the contract situations do get straightened out. So it's been a slow week with the the Lightning. It's going to be, I think, a, a, an offseason that sort of drags on, especially with an unclear picture of what to expect moving forward with the Lightning and the league in general. So we'll we'll get into some of that. I know there's some of those questions that you guys have sent in as well that um, – you don't have a lot of people wondering what's going to take place and what this Lightning team is going to look like. So we'll touch on all that. I uh, had a chance also to talk to Brian Engblom, Stanley Cup champion, current color analyst for the Lightning broadcast on Fox Sports Sun. So you'll hear from Brian here in a little bit, uh, an interview that I conducted with him. We touched on a number of things, including the championship, of course, Victor Hedman and uh, a, a teammate of Engblom's that Victor Hedman plays a lot like and reminds him a lot of. We talked about the Stanley Cup, and we're by all, all very familiar with the day with the cup that the players are able to get. Um, that wasn't the case when he was playing. So uh, we talked to him about that a little bit and some of his thoughts on the great Mike Doc Emmerich, who announced his retirement couple of days ago from the broadcast booth. Of course, he's been the national voice with NBC and the NHL for a number of years. Spent time as the color or play-by-play guy of the New Jersey Devils before that. So had a chance to talk to him about um, Mike Doc Emmerich as well as Rick Peckham as well. So uh, stick around for that interview. That was a lot of fun. Hopefully by now, a lot of you have had the opportunity to read my exclusive interview with Steven Stamkos in some of these situations uh, that we touched on and, and that he dealt with from the injury, from the family situation that took him away from the team for three weeks to winning the cup, to the celebration, the, the boat parade. Um, the first three parts are out. Uh, I broke this up into four parts. So three of them are out right now. You can find them at Lightning Insider. Dot com. Don't forget, if you are not yet a subscriber to my site, you can use the code PODCAST. That's 
podcast at checkout, and I'll give you $10 off your first yearly subscription uh, by simply entering that in the coupon code when you check out. Again, that's podcast. On that, um, the fourth segment will touch on his thoughts on winning the Stanley Cup, on him having his name on the Stanley Cup forever. Um, We touched on the future of this team, and we touched on his future with this team. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, If it's not already out by the time you listen to this podcast, uh, certainly when I recorded it, it was not out yet, but uh, potentially by the time you listen to this, it could be out uh, by then. So I hope you have a chance to check all of that out as well. All right. as we mentioned, not a whole lot of movement taking place with really the league in general. And we know the situation that Julian Brisebois is up against. We've discussed it many times here on this podcast and other interviews that I've conducted and radio shows that I've been on. It's it's no secret what Julian Brisebois is up against. It's no shock, I guess, in some ways that the salary cap relief that he's looking for has yet to be attained because what we see, I think what we're seeing really with the league um, on, on many levels is an uncertain future, an uncertain, uh, an unknown, if you will, looking forward to whenever the season's going to start and what the economic impact uh, this has all had on the league. We know that there's uh, damage. You can't, you can't avoid that in this situation if you're the NHL. You need fans in the stands. You missed out on the final three-plus weeks of the regular season. Of course, we know the entire postseason was played without fans in the stands. And again, credit, so much credit goes to the NHL and the NHLPA for being able to put together a plan to finish the 2019-2020 season to crown a Stanley Cup champion as they did with Tampa Bay finishing off the Dallas Stars in six games to capture the second Stanley Cup title in league history or in franchise history. Now it's um, it's an unknown. It, it's it's a it's a question mark of what to look for for the 2020-2021 season. We don't know when or if fans are going to be able to get in the stands, and that and that's the big question with this league in particular because they rely so much on fans to be in the arenas. They rely on those luxury boxes, those loge suites, everything that uh, teams have inside their buildings to generate revenue. It's a big part of it. Um, it's been thrown around that 40%, I even heard Gary Bettman mention potentially 50% of league revenues come from gate, gate tickets and, and you know, those, those luxury boxes we talked about. Without those, there's a lot of teams who will tell you it's not worth it for them to play. So that's a big uncertainty. If they can have fans in the stands, can you start with a smaller percentage and gradually increase this? You know, it's one thing that we've seen outdoor events, right? The NFL, college football, we're seeing the Rays in the World Series take place in Arlington, Texas. There's about 11,000 people in the stands there, roughly about 20% of capacity. 
But those are outdoor venues. It's a different story when you're talking about indoor venues and the potential spread of COVID-19. You know, you have to have a unbelievable HVAC filtration system. And I don't know if one actually exists to the level that you would need it to be to help slow the spread of this when you're indoors. And again, I'm not trying to be a scientist, um, you know, but they don't, there's no, there's no known yet whether people being indoors is going to make numbers jump. I mean, we're already starting to see some numbers jump. It doesn't feel like it here in the state of Florida, but you know, Around the country, the temperatures are getting a little bit cooler. People may not be spending as much time outdoors, and they might be spending more time indoors. You know, it's one thing that Disney World is open, and I've been a couple of times, and I I feel comfortable being there with a mask on and being outside. But it's a completely different story when you're talking about being inside. So can, can pro sports leagues that play their games indoors, including the NBA, can they bring back fans as soon as January? It, it's it's a question that's really, you can't answer. It can't be answered right now. Everything is all just speculation. And just as we saw when the league put together this return to play format, you know, they didn't announce what the hub cities were going to be. They felt like they knew where they wanted to go, but they didn't jump to a decision right away. They let things play out. As we know, Vegas... Vegas was going to be a hub city, but in the early parts of June, as some places around the country started to open up their businesses, you started to see cases rise, right? And what's the big draw in Vegas? Well, it's casinos. Well, they're indoors. So, you know, so the league didn't commit to Vegas until... You know, well, they didn't they didn't commit to, to the cities until much later on, in the process, we know they, they settled in on a Toronto and Edmonton, but Vancouver was supposed to be a city. Uh, the Vancouver health officio- officials there did not give their approval, um, but the league showed it could happen. So just there's just so much unknown as we look forward to a potential 2021 season that with all that in mind, to kind of bring it back around, is... With so much undetermined, teams, I think, are hesitant to commit too many dollars. And that has put a very slow pace to the free agent market and, of course, the trade market. You've seen a couple of trades here and there, but nothing, of course, involving the Lightning. And and we saw the big-name free agents. You know, Alex Petrangelo goes to the Vegas Golden Knights. Tory Krug leaves Boston, goes to the St. Louis Blues. Uh, Jacob Markstrom um, signed his contract with uh, Calgary. Um, You know, so we saw some of the big names. Taylor Hall, his one-year deal with the Buffalo Sabres. So the big names have been signed, but you start to look at what is still available on the free agent market here as we talk right now. And there's, you know, a guy like Mike Hoffman, a 30-goal scorer. I mean, he you can pencil him in for 30 goals in a regular season, in a regular 82-game season. But he had 29 goals this past year for Florida. So you he's as a sure thing as a 30-goal scorer as there is in the league right now. He's still unsigned. Anthony Duclair, 
different situation because of how much he's been moved around, but he scored 23 goals for Ottawa last year. Uh, he was not qualified by the Senators. Um, he remains an unrestricted free agent. A guy like Carl Soderberg, who has had some really good seasons with Boston, now with um, went, spent some time in Colorado, now with, uh, was with Arizona. He remains out on the market. Uh, Michael Granlin from Nashville is a free agent at the age of 28. I mean, there's just uh, Andreas Athanasiu, who was not uh, qualified by the Edmonton Oilers. You know, those those type of players are getting, I don't know if, if this is the right phrase, but I'm going to use it anyway. They're getting squeezed. Right, Sammy Votnin. Think about that. Sammy Votnin's a right-handed shot. Yeah, coming off uh, an injury-plagued season with New Jersey, and then finishing it off with Carolina when he was moved at the trade deadline. There's a right-handed shot defenseman, a guy who has some offense to his game, still sitting out there as a free agent. Those are players that, in a normal off-season, you know, this deep into it, would would have jobs. They would have contracts for next year. So that kind of gives you an indication of where the league stands. You've seen in the odd guy, Chris Russell, just signed a one-year extension with Edmonton. Mike Smith, a few days into free agency, signed, re-signed with Edmonton. Um, you know, So you've seen the odds here and there. And then with the trade situation, too, I just, I just get the sense that as we're sitting here talking right now, that it's going to have to be a wait-and-see, patient approach to everything that Julian wants to get done. We know he needs to clear the cap space. It's not a secret. It's just a, a process to get it done. Because here we are again. You know, we're still talking. Uh, first day of free agency was October 9th. Pat Maroon agreed to terms on a two-year deal extension. Luke Shen agreed to terms on a one-year deal those contracts have still not been filed. They have still not been made official because they need to keep open as much cap space as possible. And that's, well, Maroon's 900000 so Shan's 800000 That's $1.7 million in cap space that Julian Breezeball has to keep open for the risk, just the risk, of an offer sheet. I, I don't think an offer sheet is something that we need to be overly concerned with, but as a GM, he's making sure he does what he has to do to protect the team, the players, the franchise, the roster, everything. So that's why those contracts haven't been filed yet. They haven't been, even been announced officially by the team at this point. So that's why I just think it's just going to have to be a, as we, I think once we get a date, and right now we don't have a date, we only have a floating date. Right, it's January first. I don't know how realistic that is at this point. We're sitting here in the middle of October. Training camps to start on January first. Training camps would have to open about the second week of December, and then you're gonna have to throw Christmas in there. So Christmas would be at least a couple of days off. Normally in a season, it's there's no games on the 24th, the 25th, or the 26th. You know, so you would have to factor that into whatever training camp you might do. So you're looking at, you know, five weeks from now, training camps would have to open. And I, I just don't know with where the world is right now if that's plausible. So you've heard, or we've heard, middle of January, 
seems a little bit more realistic. Bill Foley, who is the owner of the Vegas Golden Knights, was on a radio station out in Las Vegas recently, had even mentioned that the middle of February has been something that's been tossed around. So you can kind of see where the league is at when it comes to trying to put together their business. And until there's a date, I think we're going to be slow on this front. You know, I think we're going to be slow on trades. We're going to be slow on signings. You know, there's no real pressure right now to have to worry about some of the restricted free agents, right? The Sergachevs, the Sorellis, the Chernaks, you know, Matthew Joseph, um, you know, the players who are, are still restricted free agents. I don't think there's a concern about, um, pr- and there's no pressure points to, to have to get a deal done right now. The cap situation is certainly something that Tampa Bay has to deal with on top of everything else. But the threat of an offer sheet, I don't think it's real. I don't think offer sheets are much of a threat to begin with. But in this climate specifically, you would have you have to massively overpay. You understand how much it would have to take for a team to sign Mikhail Sergachev to a offer sheet and A, uh, entice him enough to sign it, and B, entice Tampa Bay enough not to match it and just take the draft pick compensation would have to be massive. I just I don't see that happening in this financial climate. There are teams that have the cap space, but do they have the budget to do it? I don't think they do. So I, I don't think that's a possibility. You know, one thing that's been thrown around, well, if they can't trade a Tyler Johnson, if they can't move an Alex Kalorn or whoever they want to try and, and, and free up uh, some cap space by moving out, uh, would you have to consider trading the rights to one of those restricted free agents, a Chernak, a Sergachev, or a Sorelli? I mean, nothing's off the table. You have to consider all your options if you're Julian Brisebois. But I don't think that's something that he is um, inclined to really think about too much. There's other things he wants to try. There are other avenues he wants to go down first before making... Uh, before that thought would even come into your mind. it's Look, you could get a better package back for, say, an Anthony Sorelli than a Tyler Johnson, but that doesn't that you're not looking for a package. You're looking to try and put the best team possible on the ice for next year, and that best roster includes Mikhail Sergachev and Anthony Sorelli. There's no doubt about it. Because here's the other factor when you're talking about any trades that Tampa Bay wants to try and consummate. You can't take players back. You can't take contracts back. The whole idea is to trade out salary cap space. So you can't you can't trade a four-year Tyler Johnson contract at $5 million for somebody else's two years at $6 million. You can't do it. Even at $4 million, you can't do it. You're not, you're not saving yourself enough space. And look, I, Julian Breesbaugh is a very intelligent man. He has explored uh, or, or mapped out all these avenues. He'll find a way to get it done, and he's he knows what all those options could be. But I just I just think he has to be patient and he has to wait because that's where the league is at right now with with nothing definitive in terms of planning. It's just kind of hard to map things out. You know, the one thing, the one bit of news that did come out is that the league has made it known to the seven teams that did not make the playoffs that did not make the 24 team playoff tournament 
those seven teams will get an opportunity to have an extended training camp session. So now you're going to have to tack on probably an extra two weeks to your training camp for those to accommodate those teams. So again, that's why you see so many moving targets that are taking place, and it's just really hard to to pin down and, and try and navigate if you're a general manager in the NHL on where things are at. So that's where things are at. All right, let's go ahead and listen to my interview with Brian Engblom. I can't thank Brian enough for agreeing to come on with me for a little bit. Um, we touched on a number of subjects again, uh, obviously winning the Stanley Cup for Tampa Bay, um, his thoughts on Doc Emmerich retiring, his thoughts on Rick Peckham retiring, uh, as well as what he would have done with his day with the Stanley Cup had he ever had that opportunity. Here's Brian Engblom. Uh, Brian, thanks for uh, coming on. Appreciate your time here. Um, we're about three weeks removed from it now. Does it uh, still seem kind of surreal in some ways that the, this lighting team won the Stanley Cup and uh, finally fulfilled all those expectations that so many people had on them? Yeah, I, I think it's always surreal. Um, I kind of relived a few moments from back in the day, Eric. Um, you know, when when the team won, you know, just going through. I actually, I, I probably do that every year, you know, when I watch on television, but obviously it was a lot closer to home here. And uh, the feelings that you have and, and the, uh, you know, I, just feeling really good for, for the players on the Lightning because that sense of incredible accomplishment that you feel in the first moments and days and weeks, and then things just sort of start to settle in in your mind, and you go, "Damn, we we actually did it!" Mm-hmm. And this this is what it feels like. This is this is the elusive feeling, Eric. That you know, people who like me who have been just lucky enough to play on good enough teams to win, and every player will tell you that. Because I've seen a lot of great players along, you know, over the years, that Hall of Fame players that never won, and you know, everybody wants to win, uh, and anybody who hasn't, you go, well, wouldn't it be great if so and so won? You know, like Bogosian's a great example, right? Never been in the playoffs, but long career, and and he finally wins, uh, and go down the list. But once you've won, the feeling that you get, and then going into next year, all the Lightning players now will want that feeling. They have that taste in their mouth and that feeling of accomplishment that there is nothing else like it in sports. And there are very few things in life that are like that. Incredible feeling of accomplishment. Now they know what it's like. And I think I've said to you before, Eric, that you know teams that have won before in some ways want it even more than players who haven't because they know what it's like. They know what it tastes like and they know what it feels like. And so you're going to see tremendous drive from the team next year to get that feeling again. What what impressed you the most about that run? I, for me, it was the resiliency, this this whole uh, nothing's going to distract us from our goal type of situation. You go back to the five-overtime game and – you know, the Bruins tying the game late and then Tampa Bay winning in double overtime in game five. What, what were some of the moments, some of the things about this team this year that, that really kind of stood out to you that helped them get to that title? Uh, watching the how the team understood, really did understand, you know, what it took. Um, after, again, going back to last year, you know, the, the pain and the embarrassment of last year, which they had to endure all year long. I mean, they couldn't wait for the playoffs to start again. And then to get to play Columbus again, 
and beat them and, and play the way they did and change their style of play and hang in there when, when the going got tough. And I'm sure that there was a lot of talk going on on the ice because if I'm on Columbus, and there's always guys that are talkers on every team, right, that I'm sure we're going, remember last year, remember last year, you know, trying to get them rattled? They never got rattled. And so the tremendous learning process there and development as a team and as individuals, I thought the Columbus series in general what really set the table for them. And it obviously allowed them to move on. They got rid of something that um, lasted for over well over a year, too long. You know, for, for them to have to go through that. So that was a, a big thing for me. So, yeah, the resiliency going forward, every series you see that. You have to. There are key times in games. Uh, you're losing games. How you deal with that. Uh, also winning games and putting it behind you and not trying to um, continue on. Like, say, it, you know, it doesn't matter if you win game one in a series. You don't go into game two thinking, okay, we're just going to, this is going to be a continuation of game one. That's not the way the playoffs are. Every day is totally different. Every game is totally different because the other team is making adjustments. And that's what's so incredibly different and sometimes hard for fans to understand that, you know, regular season is a totally different mentality. And that's why the players talk about, well, we just have to play our game, which I get, as you well know, I get sick and tired of hearing that. Um, but I understand it. But in, in the playoffs, again, go back to last year, we're just going to play our game? Yeah. Well, that game got taken away from you in a big way, and you lost four straight. You can't just play your game. And the Lightning proved that this year. They play more than one way. And I think they astonished most of the league at how good they were in one-goal games and how they could shut things down. And I think they had thousands, tens of thousands of doubters around the league and, and fans that, that uh, didn't think that they could do it. But they did learn their lesson, and they, they showed that they knew what was important and how to play in the playoffs. And that was the most remarkable thing and the biggest reason that they won the Cup. As somebody who has won a Stanley Cup yourself, how much more can you appreciate what this team had to go through just in the environment with the bubble situation and so much time away from home? You don't get to share those little victories along the way with family other than through a phone call or a FaceTime call. Um, just to kind of what that group of players did through to get to that goal. Yeah, I I have I have no idea what they went through, and this is unique because yeah, you know, having been on teams that won, I I, I know the, a pretty good idea of the process, but not this year. I mean, nobody except the players that participated, the coaches, and everyone that participated in the bubbles this year. No, nobody else knows. I I mean, we watched. I I don't know what that feels like. Uh, the isolation and being away from your, your family. And life goes on. And you have well documented, you know, some of the things that have happened. I mean, you know, things that happened to Steven Stamkos. Uh, I know Victor Hedman's wife, you know, pregnant. Uh, um, and who knows? I mean, hundred, look at Tuka Rask in Boston, you know, yeah. leaving the bubble because of family issues. Uh, those, and those are not just three guys. That's not three guys that it happened to. We don't even know stuff that was going on for who knows maybe a hundred guys in the bubble and coaches and yeah. trainers and everything else everybody is isolated so you know the human life going on 
uh, away from the bubble and the two teams that get to the finals having been there for over two months that's a hell of a long time and you know your, your kids are crying and uh, because they miss their dad and uh, all kinds of stuff uh, it's uh, it's really remarkable to stay in it and it's a tribute to the families in general the wives who kept everything together and the kids hanging in there and everybody else in order to, to get this thing done huge sacrifice it's always a sacrifice for the entire family in order to win a cup in normal circumstances and this was as far away from normal as we've ever seen and hopefully never see again yeah no kidding um the i think the celebration kind of showed what a lot of those guys went through right? like because the isolation part and then then you win it and then you know, you're back here and, you know, you celebrate the way they do. Gratifying to kind of watch that from afar, from afar just to, to see these guys really kind of let loose and, and you know, get that group togetherness and, and celebrate the championship together like that? Yeah, I don't think that part ever changes there. <laughs> from one year to the next or generation to the next. That part was, it looked exactly the same. <laughs> no, they had certainly different emotions based on, you know, what we had just talked about that, you know, they had to, uh, you know, let go of and, you know, and have an enjoyment of literally just, just being out of the bubble and being set free again. So again, I, I can't even imagine, you know, that part of it. Um, maybe that added a little extra to it, but the celebration part, obviously the easiest part, um, and again, the joy uh, of, of feeling, and I think probably some of them, if not all of them, are just getting to that point now where maybe when they get up in the morning and they're having their first cup of coffee or maybe when they first go to bed and they're lying there and thinking about things uh, and having, you know, a little bit of distance now since, you know, having won the cup and been in the locker room right after, having it wash over you and the season and your own individual season and the team season now they're just starting to appreciate all those things and um really sort of uh you know recharge it's a, it's a different sort of recharge and then uh start to plan for for next season you know the the training process and everything get themselves revved up for the training process and get ready to go whenever it is we're going to start all over again uh, fortunately, we haven't seen anybody swim in a fountain yet, so the celebration hasn't spilled over that far uh, quite yet. <laughs> it's still early. <laughs> it's still early, that's right. Um, Victor Hedman, the uh, Conn Smythe winner, I know that uh, certainly since you've been here and got to watch him up close uh, every single day, still marvel at the way he plays the game, his approach to the game, and what he was able to do in this playoffs? I wasn't surprised by Victor, um, that's for sure, because of his skill level, his his talent level, his intensity, which is often overlooked by a lot of people. I mean, Victor is one of those absolutely driven players, and and that's what it takes in order to, in order to be that guy. Um, but to, I, I can't even imagine. I've seen it up close a couple of times. Former teammates that won the Conn Smythe during a couple of years, and. Um, I, I wasn't there, and you know we didn't get a chance, and, and you and I both missed that dearly too, where you get to talk to players and be around them immediately after games, and so you know we we missed that, Eric. Right? You know, we didn't get to be in that room and and see the look on Victor's face and and Stamkos and and Sorelli and everybody, you know, uh, um, in those moments right after. But the appreciation and the feeling of accomplishment that I talked about add on 
won another 10 notches for Victor Hedman, having won the Conspike Trophy as the most valuable player in the playoffs. Can you imagine the feeling of accomplishment that gives you? Yeah. Uh, a sense of all that hard work that I put in, not just in the off season, during the season, last year, 10 years ago, all these things I think wash over them. The utter exhaustion, the feeling of exhaustion, and have it turn out to be in, uh, you know, for, for with, with a win, for a win. Um, I, I can't imagine. I haven't been there, never been that guy, never will. But it, it must be just a fascinating, incredible feeling that you'd obviously want to relive over and over again, and Victor will for the rest of his life, and certainly well-deserved. He was a beast. Um, he was everything that we see from Victor Hedman all the time, and he was that guy night after night. And you don't win. Every team, every winning team has it. Petrangelo was probably that guy for St. Louis last year, right? Mm-hmm. And you can go back over time, back in history, generations, and you'll see that one cornerstone guy that all you know that that, uh, that did it and was that person. You need that, and that was fascinating to watch Victor Hedman do that. A lot of comparisons because based on the size, but uh, you play with Larry Robinson. Any similarities in, in the in the way that they can kind of control games, take over games? <laughs> I was just going to say Larry's name when I was talking about that. <laughs> Absolutely, he re- he reminds me of Larry uh, an awful lot because you know size. Certainly, he's even bigger than Larry. I think six four, about two twelve. For if I remember right, or two fifteen, something like that for Robinson. Um, but his ability to skate, and especially in, in comparison, uh, you know, everybody's faster than they were, you know, than we played in, in the seventies. But there are a lot of fast guys back then. Believe me, uh, the tempo of the game was a lot different back then. Larry played two minute shifts sometimes. Um, <laughs> nobody does that anymore. Uh, the, the big three, Robinson, Savard, and Lapointe, dominated the game in key games in the playoffs. Usually one of them was on the ice at all times uh, because you could do that, and you had to do that because they all could swallow ice time. We didn't keep track of ice time in a big way back then. I'll, I'll bet you Larry played in some overtime games. I'll bet you he played 40, 45 minutes. It cool. wouldn't shock me at all. I mean, it's incredible. You watch some of the old footage and how he was out there, it seemed like, all the time. But his skating ability, and he played a lot of the game skating forward like Victor does, and, you know, swooped around and made unexpected plays even back then, which Victor does all the time. You know, jump into the offense, great shot, incredible passer, um, huge factor in the game that the other teams have to have a plan for. All of those things, uh, a lot of similarities in the way that they conducted themselves and played the game. Uh, the biggest difference would be, um, you know, the fighting factor was a factor for Larry. He didn't fight much, obviously, in the playoffs, but he was, when he got mad, he was mean and he was a hell of a fighter. Just ask some of the Broad Street bullies back in the 70s. Um, and, you know, Victor doesn't have to deal with that. The game is different and I'm glad it is. So, and the hitting factor, Larry hit like a Mack truck. So he hit more than Victor did. So some differences, but a lot of similarities. Don't be left out. Make sure you subscribe to the Lightning Insider on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else where podcasts are found. Now, here again is Eric. 
One of the greatest traditions with the Stanley Cup is the players get to spend a day with it. Uh, we're not sure how that's going to plan out in this COVID world we're in right now, but um, that wasn't a tradition when, when you uh, won the Cup. Do you feel you missed out on something now seeing all of this? And, uh, you know, um, maybe what would, you, what would you have done if you'd had the Cup? Oh, yeah, for sure. I think about it every year when I read the stories <laughs> about the player. I don't think that started until the 90s somewhere. Yeah. Nobody seems to be sure. I, I'm, somewhere along the way, I'm sure the league obviously knows, but I've never been able to quite nail it down what the, what the first year was, whether it was the Rangers in 94 or maybe it was before that. But it certainly wasn't the late 70s when we won. So, no, I, I never got a day with the cup. None of our guys did. Um, so... Yeah, I'm, am I jealous of that? Absolutely. Uh, what would I have done back then would have been tough because you have to decide. You pretty much go home, hometown, right? I would have gone back to Winnipeg to the old neighborhood uh, and where I played outdoor hockey, you know, until I was probably about 12 or 13, right up, you know, a block from my house. Go there, get all my friends together, I guess rent a place. Um, uh, and, you know, have a big party and then, you know, have family. You know, a lot of the things that, that you know, we have read about over the many years now that, that players do. Um, uh, it, things were a little different then. It would have been fun to have it for friends in Montreal, too. But you only, you, only, you know, because I've been there a few years. Um, and it, it's hard to get everybody together. And, you know, you, didn't, you couldn't fly people around. I mean, guys are making uh, a little bit more money than we did, Eric. So if you say, well, we'll, we'll fly in, you know, we'll fly in, come in, do this. And, you know, and, <laughs> we wouldn't have been able to quite do that. But uh, I know for a fact I would have found uh, some way to have a pretty good time with my 24 hours. Like, I don't think I would have slept much. <laughs> yes, it's kind of like the keep cupper, uh, cup keepers. They don't sleep a whole lot either. Um, I, I remember... Yeah. I remember when I uh, when I went up to Montreal. There were three days in '04 when it went from uh, Vinny to Andre Watts to Marty Saint Louis, uh, Walt Newbrand, who was one of the uh, cup keepers, and he actually had to pull off the side of the road and take a quick nap with the Stanley Cup in the back of the car because he hadn't slept in about 36 hours. It's really <laughs> oh yeah, those guys get in at some fantastic parties. Don't <laughs> boy, I mean, that's pretty good stuff. They get treated like royalty, and great job to have. I'll I'll bet that uh, there's a long line of guys who are willing to step in and, and uh, take that job oh yeah um how many times have you been to the hall of fame uh, have you been to the hall of fame and, and looked at the cup and have have you looked for your name because that's one of the greatest things about this trophy to me is that you know your name gets etched and it's on the cup for a certain amount of years and then it's in the hall of fame forever and i mean how many times have you gone back and maybe looked for your name on the cup well, I got to do it again when the Lightning had uh, the cup at Amelie uh, was uh, last week. Uh, when you know those of us who work for the organization, you got to you got to uh, schedule a time. And I went, and, Lori and I went and got some pictures taken with it. It was great. Um, I don't. Uh, I last time I was at the Hall of Fame. Jeez, it's been a long time, Eric. Uh, I bet you it's been fifteen, twenty years since I've been to the Hall of Fame. At uh, that time, yes, I did see the cup. Uh, there have been a lot of changes to the Hall of Fame since then. Yeah. Um, but, yes, I did look up my name, as I did, and have a few pictures pointing to my name <laughs> on the cup when I was at Amelie uh, last week, uh, which was, it's great, it's terrific. Because we didn't 
get to do the things. We didn't get a day with the cup and, you know, constantly be around it and, you know, walk around with it. I mean, sleep with it if you, if you want to, right, which many guys have done. Um, it, so it, it, it's a kick. There's That's for sure. There's a sense of pride that certainly never goes away. And, uh, you know, players were always saying, and this is an interesting point, Eric. I started thinking about this. When you, when you talk to players over these many years, when they talk about winning, when they talk about winning the cup, um, some players will say, yeah, it's about winning the cup, getting their name on the cup. And for other guys, it's getting a Stanley Cup ring, isn't it? Yeah. Other guys will say, I want, the, I want that ring. I want that ring. I want that ring. So it seems like for them, they, you know, they, they talk about the ring first and then your name on the cup second. It's interesting to me how players perceive it. Now, obviously, you want both. But it's just kind of a funny thing. Which which is the first one that they mention? You know that uh, uh, is interesting to me. But there is no doubt. And even having because every player gets a, a replica cup. Um, it's about I don't know uh, eighteen inches high, something like that. And they're beautiful. They're standardized size. And you have all the names of your team and your management, etc., um, on your cup. And so I have I have them on the shelves here at home, and I can look at them every day. And they're great. And when people come into the house, you know, they get that wow factor for sure. They go, oh, my goodness, that's what those look like. And it's it's pretty cool. And for me, that's uh, that's pretty much on an even par with the ring. As much as I love, you know, the rings that I have, um, uh, they're all great. You know, and all the uh, all the extra things that, you know, teams give you, it's fantastic stuff. Uh, but, you know, having your name on the cup and looking at it on the big one certainly is really Special. Yeah, that's that's something that's always stood out to me in, in covering, you know, the league for twenty years is just that that like that word etch, like it just it just has a certain connotation to it that just makes yeah, it stand out true. to me and it's that's pretty cool to think about. Um couple more questions here for you, Brian. Appreciate your time. Uh, speaking of the Hall of Fame, uh, Hall of Fame broadcaster Mike Emmerich just retired uh, earlier this week. I know you get a chance to work with him a little bit there at NBC and whatnot. Um, just how much of a legend is, is Mike Emmerich in the broadcasting business, you know, in the NHL? Doc's a terrific human being, and that's the best place to start. He just is a very thoughtful, very kind man who is very observant of people and places and things and animals. He's a well-known, renowned dog lover uh, and has done a ton for the SPCA and raised money, etc. So that tells you a lot about him right there. Um, his career, um, 50 years of announcing, and I just now, you know, you've read, as I have, some of the background story, which I didn't know, uh, about how he started and how it took him several years before he ever got a chance to do any announcing and how he never gave up on his dream, how he practiced, how he'd go to games and simply sit in an empty section with a recorder and do his own play by play and then listen, listen to it back and improve. And I mean, that's what he's told, uh, countless young, uh, budding broadcasters to do, you know, until they get their break. Um, and, his contribution to to young people who are interested in becoming broadcasters, countless people, I, I don't even know how many, but always very patient. I, I have no idea how many tapes he's listened to over the years that people send him to, but I know it's a lot, and listen to them and give a very thoughtful um, um, suggestions, uh, critique, or whatever you want to call it, uh, to their, you know, so that they can improve. 
not just say, oh, it sounds good, good luck. You know, Doc's not that guy. When when he says, you know, I will listen to it, I will I will let you know, he gives a very thoughtful. I mean, that means a lot from a guy who is a Hall of Famer. Mm-hmm. How many Emmys has he won? I think he's won five Emmys. I think it's the best best uh, play-by-play guy, that's up against guys like Al Michaels, you know, who, football, all the different sports. I think he's won it five times. It's incredible. So that shows you what his peers think about him, too. Just the play-by-play guys, never mind the rest of us who do our different jobs in the, in the, the sport. The one thing I remember about Doc, I, I don't know how many games I did with him. Um, a handful, I think, over the years with, with ESPN and here and there. Sometimes I was the third guy. Sometimes I was in the booth with him. Um, his preparation is, is well known. You know, he leaves no stone unturned. And to that point, I remember being with him and doing a game. Uh, I think we were in Philadelphia. And we went for a glass of wine afterwards at the hotel. And uh, we were talking about the game, and he put his briefcase down. And I forget what we were talking about, but I asked him something. He went, oh, I, I think, let me just look here. And he opened his briefcase and, on the table, and he started taking stuff up. Whatever he was digging around for, I don't remember. But I looked at what he took out. He had files. He had game sheets from the late 1960s <laughs> NHL. I, I believe it was Boston, Chicago, 1968, that he took out. And I went, Doc, what is this? He goes, yeah, he said, I review these from time to time. I like looking at them. I've always, I can't even imagine what his library at home (laughs) looks like, the things that he kept. I'm sure that the Hall of Fame uh, is very interested, and who knows, he's maybe contributed a lot of them already. I've never asked him that. But I texted him yesterday uh, to congratulate him, and I brought that point up, and he just kind of chuckled, you know, in the text back about it but that's the kind of stuff that doc did it was from the late 1960s and there were notes attached to it that he had made um and just incredible capacity of full commitment to your job and your craft and knowing everything as much as you can the referee talk to referees linesmen the officials around the league over the a couple of generations of, of those guys where he would make a point, especially in the playoffs when the audiences are big, of, but, and also when guys were retiring or when a referee was doing his 1,000th game or, or maybe 1,500th game or whatever, having gone to the referee's room before the game or maybe weeks before and saying, you know, ask about his family and what his wife's name is and where he grew up and all that kind of stuff. That's Doc. That's that's the way he did it. His attention to all these things, and most of us are overlooking. And then he brings that. He brought that that uh, personal touch uh, to it from his standpoint, and let you know who the person was and where they came from for a moment, and fit it into the game. Uh, that all along with a tremendous capacity to use his voice and let you know exactly what the game felt like if you were at home sitting on your couch. That's all pretty tremendous stuff. Did, did you feel that sitting next to him and, and having the same headset on as him? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Um, also, uh, a stickler for detail. He got mad at himself if he made a mistake, which was very few. You know, identifying somebody would correct it right away. Um, but if you made a mistake, he would never say anything. He'd just <laughs> keep going. And um, you would realize it later, and, you know, you could just off here and say, thanks, Doc, I know I screwed that up. Go, ah, no, no, it was, you know, great. 
So, um, but to listen to, you get caught up. You know, sometimes I remember first game or two doing with him, like you forget to talk. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're, you're so busy listening to him do a game, and I heard him do games so many times. You're listening to the ebb and flow and the cadence of his voice and carrying the game, and then there's an opening and a quiet, and it's like, oh yeah, this is my part. I'm supposed to be speaking now. Say something, idiot. Um, a little bit of that happened from time to time. Uh, and uh, that's, you know, one of the great compliments, actually, I think that I can give him. I get caught up in the game just listening to him. How many times do you ever quote Slapshot to you? <laughs> His recall is incredible. And sometimes he'd be saying things, I think, yeah, I know that from somewhere, but he, he knows exactly where it's from and who said it and whether he read it or a player said it to him, you know, 25 years ago or whether it was from Slapshot. Doc had it all in the memory banks, just a tremendous capacity uh, for recall at uh, key times as well, too. And story after story after story of players that where you go, oh, my goodness, I forgot that guy's name. And it could be from the American League, not just even, you know, NHL players but specifics on certain stories of what happened that, you know, at, at halfway through the second period in, in a game in, in who knows where. Um, and, you know, Doc has it all in the memory banks. Um, yeah, he just we're, we're losing a, a treasure. He's a national treasure. It's just I think that's the best way to kind of put it. We're, we're spoiled because of how long we've got to listen to him uh, calling national games. Um, but we're we're gonna miss him. He's uh, he's a voice of a generation of a couple of generations of hockey fans, and um, it's it's gonna be weird next year with those national games not hearing Doc's voice there. Yeah. Um. Okay. You, you, you got to work with Doc, but you also got to work with Rick Peckham, and we've talked a lot about how this is was his last year, and uh, what a way for him to go out calling Braden Point's overtime winner. Um, in Game Five against Columbus, but just you know, the past few years being able to work, you know, side by side with another Hall of Famer, Rick Beckham. Yeah, and so well deserved. Um, talk about the storybook ending. Um, COVID, you know, with notwithstanding, of course, um, it could have been it was a lot more natural. But at the same time, ending your career with you know Hall of Fame and a Stanley Cup for your team, uh, that is terrific and, and so well-deserved for, for Rick. Uh, you know, when when you've worked, what is it, 42 years for Rick and 24 with the Lightning um, and start off, you know, in the American League and similarities to what we were just talking about, you know, with Doc, that's, that's how you do it. And you, you have to be prepared and wait for your opportunity. And Rick did that and worked his way up and then on to – Hartford Whalers, and then uh, coming here to to the Lightning, uh, just uh, the same way as as Mike Emmerich, his uh, his his capacity for learning, um, his commitment to the job, the homework level, same thing as Doc, um, always reading. Um, tremendous memory. Rick is really good at that because he's extremely well read about the league and about other things as well too. But his capacity for learning and to his memory, uh, amazing. I remember that it wasn't Rick; it was somebody else. It might have been Chief uh, who said it. He said, "You know what? It wasn't that long ago, a few years ago." Because Rick is, we all know, is is a huge sports fan. It's not just the NHL. Huge baseball fan. 
he'll watch 100, 120 baseball games a year, you know, in the offseason, in a normal year, right? <laughs> uh, and that's a huge number, like for me, he's watching baseball all the time. Football, huge football fan, as you well know, and I do. He's a Packer fan, right? Yep. You ask him history about the Packers, yeah, he knows it down pretty well. <laughs> but I think it was Chief that said to me that, you know what, probably five or six years ago or so, Rick almost knew the starting lineups of all the NFL teams. I mean, it's a tremendous capacity for, you know, because obviously that's what he does. So his brain is trained that way. But who else does that? I mean, yeah, I I know there are guys that work multiple sports uh, and, you know, have to jump back and forth. And and I don't even know how they do that. And Rick has certainly done that, right? He's he's done a lot more than just hockey. He's done a lot of tennis, as we know. You know, he follows tennis. That's another sport he loves. He and his wife, Vicky, loves tennis. So they're watching it all the time, something I know nothing about. And, you know, his capacity to take it all in and just loves it um, and, and tell you stuff about what's going on in, in the other sports uh, because he has worked on I mean, He's done college football. I, I don't know if he did a pro football game. I think so. I think he's done some soccer. Uh, he certainly has done tennis. Uh, I mean, you know, just such a wide-ranging variety of that's how you get better, right, is, is, being, uh, is putting yourself in those situations and learning how to do them. Uh, I, I'm sure he'd be the first to say that it made him a better broadcaster doing hockey, which is one of the most intense, certainly, because of the, the quickness of the play. And you can go on for six or seven minutes without a whistle, you know, so it's exhausting, too, um, as compared to a totally, totally different cadence of baseball. One pitch and it's over. Right. And you better have a lot of stuff to talk about in between yeah. or or, you know, people are going to say, well, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He, Rick had all, all that capacity and all that learning and all that study uh, in order to do it. And then, of course, he used his his tools and his gifts, just like Mike Emmerich, you know, the ability to carry the game. And same thing, you know, over the last five years, working side by side with him and traveling with him and knowing him uh, so well. And then just listening to him, same thing. Sometimes I'm just listening to the game and watching the game. And same thing, like, uh, yeah, I'm supposed to say something here. Uh, because, you know, you just get caught up in watching and listening. And that's what, that's what Hall of Fame play-by-play guys do. Yeah, we, we've been spoiled here in the Tampa Bay market, and um, certainly I've gotten a, a greater appreciation for Rick over the last four years when the Tribune went under that I'm watching more games on TV because I'm usually I was always at the rink, right, whether it was a home game or a road game. I was always at the rink. I never got a chance to listen to the broadcast and, you know, to hear him and knowing how much we're going to miss him, uh, you know, bringing the game to our living rooms for 24 years like he did. It's uh, it's going to be it's going to be tough shoes to fill whoever uh, whoever takes uh, Rick's place. That's for sure. And, and you know what? It's it's great too that he he knew um, he just decided this is it. I remember him telling us it was about a little bit. That's where we're more mid October right now. So it was earlier than this. I think it was in September, late August. Uh, last year when he said, that, you know, this is my last year, I'm, I'm done. And we're all kind of like, uh, <laughs> uh, really? Oh, okay. And and in just watching him again and, you know, being with him all year, he very much, very relaxed. I know Chief and I brought that up several times. Very uh, 
at ease and calm with his decision, which is great, right? That's the way it should be. Yeah. He just decided this is it. There's a few things I want to do, you know, in the future here. And our our business is all consuming, right? It's all gas pedal or all brake. And once the season starts, man, you go like hell. You're in and out of town. You miss a lot of things. And he had decided that, you know, he and Vicky want to travel and what other things he has planned, I don't know. Enjoy his family, certainly, all those things. He, he was very calm and at ease uh, with his decision. And that, I think, was great to watch for me and for all of us who just knew that he just, I think, sat back and really enjoyed this season. And how about, you know, going all the way and winning the cup? So, you know, nobody deserves it more than Rick Peckham after a fabulous career. And it's great. Now, all, all I can tell you is you or anybody else, um, by Jan, well, I should say already, but certainly by January, you don't want to play golf against him, that's for sure, because he is a master with a wedge in his hand, and uh, he will he will have you very quickly. So just be careful. I'm just giving you a word of advice there. If you happen to play with Rick, uh, if you want to put your money down, uh, just be careful. He's a hell of a golfer, and he's only going to get better. So it sounds like you need to get some practice in here in the next few weeks to, uh, to be prepared for that. Oh, he's, he beats me easily. He could, he could do it with a blindfold on and a couple of holes, no doubt. All right, Brian, hey, we've gone longer than uh, than I anticipated, but I really appreciate your time, and uh, we'll look forward to uh, hearing from you again down the road. Absolutely. Anytime, Eric. Yeah, it's great. A lot of interesting stuff has gone on in the off season, and let's hope that the off season isn't too long. All right, that was the great Brian Engblom coming on the podcast here and. Some good stuff from Brian, as you would expect. So hope you enjoyed that interview there. All right, before we get to your questions and wrap up the show, don't forget you, if you ever have questions, the best way to get them to me is to use the hashtag AskEE on Twitter. That's the easiest way to do so. Um, you can DM me as well. My my direct messages are open, so if you want to do that, you can send them out my, my way through there. As well, but before we get to those questions, um, I want to give away a signed copy of my book. If you haven't purchased it yet, um, you can find it. It's called Lightning Strikes. It's published by Triumph Books. You can get it directly from Triumph at triumphbooks.com slash lightningwin. Uh, you can find it. It uh, should be available on Amazon as well. Uh, booksellers, you can find it some local stores here in the Tampa Bay area if you're in uh, the market here, uh, BJ's, Sam's Club, Walgreens, CVS, you can find it there. But I do have a signed, personalized copy I want to give away uh, to anybody who can answer this question. And yes, it, it's tied into my website, so you have to have access to my website to answer this question. Uh, but in the in the part three of my uh, story, my interview with Steven Stamkos, he mentioned after the after they won the cop and the post game celebrations were starting to wind down deep deep into the night um he mentioned one player who was Steven and this one player uh were stragglers they were kind of the last two that said okay you know what we need to go pack up we need to get ready to get on the bus and get on the plane to head back to Tampa so name me who that player is uh, so it was Steven Stamkos and this one other player that he was with. 
you can email me, eric at lightninginsider.com, or direct message me. Don't send it to me in my notifications. Send it direct message so that nobody else sees it, so you'll have a chance to win a personalized copy of my book, Lightning Strikes, and I'll select a winner at random from all the correct answers on that. Uh, so again, name me the player that was a straggler deep into the night along with Steven Stamkos. Um, DM me at Eric underscore Erlinson on Twitter uh, or email me eric at lightninginsider.com with the correct answer. And uh, sometime here in the next little bit, we'll select a winner at random and we'll send you a personalized autographed copy of the book. And don't forget Smack Apparel if you are still looking for some Stanley Cup championship paraphernalia they have those wonderful stanley's get another tan shirt uh, you can still use my exclusive 20 percent off code use lightning 2020 go to smackapparel.com order any of the lightning gear uh, that they have on the website and use the code lightning 2020 at checkout and you get 20 percent off your purchase all right so here are the questions not a ton of them this week but a couple of good ones uh, so let's get to them the first one is going to come from scroll down here it comes from uh, right uh, right Dobbs is there a reason to worry at this point that the lightning haven't dealt Alex Kalorn Tyler Johnson or anything to make needed space for the restricted free agents what is the deadline for the team to those transactions i.e. what date should we really start to worry uh, well it, I mean, I guess the deadline date is whenever the rosters are due for the regular season, right? Like, I mean, think about this is no, this is not the same scenario, but just think about this last year. Louis Domingue, remember when Tampa Bay signed Curtis McElhaney on July 1st? And we all wondered what did that mean for Louis Domingue that Curtis McElhaney signed a two year deal? Louis Domingue came to camp, he came to training camp. He, him and um, Mike Condon worked out on their own. They did not participate in the groups. You know, Louis Domingue even went straight to Syracuse, actually played some games for Syracuse before they could finally find a home for him. Now, I'm not saying that's the deadline situation here, but these these things do sometimes tend to take time, especially when you're not in a position of um, trying to negotiate from a position of strength. I mean, everybody knows that Julian Breesmont only has to clear cap space that he has, he can't take a contract back in return. Um, so that's, that's what he's up against. Um, as far as worrying about it, you know, I, it, I think it, it's going to get done. It has to get done. You know, the Julian basically has until those, that date, whenever rosters are due. And this is why I was talking about in the first segment with the floating date, you don't know when that is. Like once once you get a hard date on the start of training camp, then you can kind of think maybe a little bit more in terms of okay, what what's the timeline here? Because technically, he doesn't have to be cap compliant until, until he turns in that roster for the start of the season. So in essence, he could still be over the cap in training camp. So I, I guess is that the deadline? It's probably the deadline. Um, certainly, they would love. Well, they kind of have to, in a lot of ways, get it done sooner than that because you have to sign Sergeyev and Sorelli in particular. Um, you have to field a twenty-three, twenty-two, maybe even twenty-one man roster, whatever it takes to kind of save as much salary cap space as you can. So that possibility is there. Um, as far as what's the date you should start to worry, 
I guess the only time you really have to look at it is is when does training camp open? You know, and as I just mentioned with the scenario with Louis Domingue, it doesn't have to be done by then. But you know, you don't you don't want something like this being a distraction, or you don't want it hanging over the team and training camp. I think they would like to be able to find at the latest, at the latest. So if you want to say it's a we call it phantom deadline, but uh, a deadline to where maybe maybe they want to make sure that things get done. May, maybe that's the date that you kind of have to look for. And the thing is, is we just don't have that date yet. Uh, from Stephen, how do you as a journalist walk the line between being objective and regular fandom? You have been covering the team for so long. Uh, is it hard to separate those two things, or are you just so in tune with journalism mentality that it's second nature? I mean, even before I started covering the team back in 2000, you know, that's your job is to be a neutral observer, right? You're there to tell stories. You're there to um, document the season for the team, whether that's through game stories, whether that's through feature stories, trend stories, whatever it happens to be. And I mean, honestly, it's not hard for me. It's not hard for me. It's it's just who I am. It's what I do. Uh, I can tell you I'm a fan of the game. I'm a fan of the NHL. I'm a fan of hockey. And from a journalistic standpoint, the only thing that we tend to cheer for are good stories. Good stories. Like this this team winning the Stanley Cup this year, it's a good story, right? They beat Columbus. They, they started with a five-overtime game against the team that swept them out of the playoffs last year after they won the President's Trophy. It's a good story. It's a redemption tour, if you want to look at it that way, right? Like, they knock off Columbus. Then they take out the team that's probably their biggest rival right now in their division. They knock off Barry Trotz's New York Islanders, and Barry Trotz, of course, was the head coach of the Washington Capitals in 2018 that prevented the Lightning from getting to the Stanley Cup. And then they knock off Rick Bonus and the Dallas Stars in the Cup Final to finally fulfill those expectations after so long. It's a good story. I love to write those kind of stories. Some journalists will tell you, though, sometimes the good stories, sometimes they come in bad seasons. You know, it, it just happens. So uh, it's not that hard for me, honestly, to to separate the two. You know, I cover the team. I don't get wrapped up in the emotions of the team. And I think that's probably just the biggest difference, right? Like that, if you can remove emotion from what it is you're watching, that's when you become objective, right? Like you can look at things. You don't get overly uh, built, uh, worked up over something. You know, you just, you you would, you kind of look at it from an analytical standpoint. Okay, analyze. Okay, what happened? Why did it happen? How did it happen? Who were the, who were the major players and the reason that it happened? Those are the kind of things that you kind of step back and take a look at uh, from a journalistic standpoint. So um, again, it's not that hard. That's a great question, Stephen. Uh, next one from Phil. If agent players agree to it, could Julian Breezeball write a contract where next year is very low, but the second, third, fourth year are higher and uneven amounts, putting off salary until he can easily make the cap, allowing players to stay here? Thoughts? Uh, all right. Uh, so I, I see what you're saying here. Can you bring in a lower number and then increase it as the contract goes along? I can tell you that's not an uncommon practice. The thing is, is that there are restrictions year from year to year. I, I don't think it can be any more, and I apologize that this is wrong. Uh, it's off the top of my head. I don't think from year one to year two can be more than a 20% jump 
from salary. It might be higher than that. I, I, I apologize. I don't know the exact percentage. So like you can't go from $1 million in the first year of the contract to $6 million in the second year of the contract. Right, and you're and you're seeing some of the contracts that are being uh, given out this year already. They're backloaded, and that's because this year there's automatic. Basically, twenty percent is going straight to escrow to cover up revenue losses for the teams. That's part of the CBA, and that's what they've agreed upon in a flat cap, where revenues are not going to go up. They have limited. Um, the escrow to 20%. So whatever contract players sign, 20% of their salary, they're giving back to the owners. Now, here's the other thing about that question, Phil. The way the salary cap works is it's the average annual value. That's why you hear a lot of people will say AAV. What's the AAV of the contract? That's the salary cap hit. So even in that scenario to where year one uh, is an increased the salary increases in year two, then it increases from that in year three and increases from that in year four. In terms of the salary cap value, that doesn't matter. It's what's the average annual value of the contract. So a guy like Tyler Johnson, for example, signed that five-year, $35 million contract. Uh, sorry, seven-year, $35 million contract. So it's a $5 million salary cap on an annual basis. But his actual salary towards the tail end of that deal drops below $4 million. I think it's 3.75. So you can see this actual salary figures go down, but the cap hit is there. The cap hit doesn't change. The cap hit is there for the life of the contract. So you can put together those sort of backloaded deals, but what you can't do is alter the, the salary cap. The salary cap is what it is, and that's not... Uh, going to change. And just to reiterate, you cannot renegotiate, you cannot restructure contracts. The NFL, uh, I believe, is the only league that truly allows you to restructure your deal to help uh, for salary cap purposes. The NHL does not allow that. Uh, Last one here from Meg. Uh, Any new word on the start of a new season? Kind of touched on it a little bit. It's a floating target. Uh, Again, the league and the Players Association did come out uh, with that January 1st target date, but it wasn't a hard target, right? Like it wasn't, to put it in, in different terms, it wasn't put in magic marker. It wasn't put in ink. Pencil it in. Again, pencil it in because that way you can easily erase it. So January 1st, January 15th, January 12th, February 15th, those are some of the dates that have been kind of tossed around and floated about. Uh, and then that brings up the next question, how many games are they going to play? I think you can assume that an 82-game schedule is not going to take place. I think that's a safe assumption. Uh, whatever uh, shortened season it's going to be. We have the precedent uh, going back to, obviously, the 2012-2013 season, uh, even going back to 94-95 season, uh, which was another strike year. That was a strike year. This most recent one was a lockout you know, they played a 48-game season that started in January. So that's kind of your model there. A lot of other complications uh, taking place. Um, you know, the all potential for an all-Canadian division. We know that the border restrictions remain in place in Canada. Anybody that comes into the country is required to quarantine for 14, 14 days. Now, they had the government's permission because of the protocols that the league had in place and able to be able to pull off the... Uh, the Stanley Cup playoffs, that's not going to be the case in the regular season. So you've heard about 
the potential of an all Canadian division, all seven Canadian teams in one division. Um, and then geographically you would kind of alter the division. So I wondered if you wouldn't end up seeing a Tampa Bay, Florida, Carolina, Washington, Philadelphia, um, type of, uh, maybe throwing Nashville in there, uh, division. So to, to limit the travel as much as you can, um, you know, so there, there's just a lot of scenarios at place. As Gary Bettman's used this phrase before, nothing's on the table and nothing is off the table. Uh, they will consider any and all options. And that's why, you know, that's a floating date because because uh, then that brings up, uh, up the question of schedules. You know, if you have an all-Canadian division, they're just going to play themselves for 48 games or whatever number they put on it. You know, does that mean that whatever division Tampa Bay ends up with, will they just play those seven teams or those eight teams? Uh, in this case, again, there's just there's so much that's unknown that can't be answered right now. So, you know, uh, I, I think I think I, I think I listened to an interview with Gary Bettman just after the Cup final was done. He went on with Steve Coolius from SiriusXM uh, NHL Radio and. I think Steve asked him, you're ready to kind of put your feet up and, you know, that you got this this tournament done. And he said, actually, it's going to be a lot harder work now than it was to put the tournament together. Like, they have so much work ahead of them. So they're meeting every day. They're, they're speaking every day. They have a, a committee uh, that kind of goes over all these scenarios and comes up with plans and subcommittees and everything else to put – plans together in place okay if we can start by this date what does this like look like if we can start by this date what is what is this schedule and divisional format look like and you know at what percentage can they open buildings with fans can they do that at all there's just there's just a ton going on and um there are no simple solutions there are no easy answers whatsoever for what the league is up against all right, that is going to wrap up this latest edition of the Lightning Insider Podcast. Uh, my thanks to Brian Engblom for coming on and, and sharing some time and some stories with us here uh, on the show. Thanks uh, to everybody who submitted questions. Don't forget, uh, give me the answer to the question that I asked. Uh, DM me or send me an email with the correct answer, and I'll draw one random winner for a free signed autograph copy of my book, Lightning Strike. So make sure you take part in that as well. All right. Uh, thanks, everybody, again for listening. Thank you for the support. Make sure you subscribe. Hit the five-star reviews, uh, everything on, on Apple, on Google, wherever it is you get your podcast, wherever you're listening to this. Uh, thank you for the support. Keep it up. Really appreciate this, and we'll check in with you next time. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. 
Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.